Well, good afternoon, everybody. We are continuing again our study in church history, and we're going to open up our time together this afternoon with a reading from Scripture in 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. The Word of God says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. And as is our custom here for our study in church history, we we like to open up our time with a prayer uh, taken from the time period that we are studying. And so this is a, uh, a prayer um, that was offered by uh, Serapion, a uh, fourth century uh, church father. And so let's pray together. We ask for your help, Father of Christ, Lord of all that is, creator of all the created, maker of all that is made. We stretch out clean hands to you and lay bare our minds, Lord, before you. Have mercy, we pray you. Spare us. Be kind to us. Improve us. Fill us with virtue, faith, and knowledge. Look at us, Lord, and bring our weaknesses for you to see. Be kind and merciful to all of us here gathered together. Have pity on this people of yours and show them your favor. Make them equitable, temperate, and pure. Send out angelic powers to make this your people, all that compose it, holy and noble. Send the Holy Spirit into our minds, I beg you, and grant that we may learn to understand the holy scriptures he inspired. May we interpret them correctly and fittingly for the benefit of all the faithful here present. Through your only Son, Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. Through him may glory and power be yours, now and age after age. Amen. Well, our 1689 Confession of Faith opens with this definitive statement on the authority of the Bible. The confession reads, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. 
Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly under writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now completed. But then this begs the question, which books belong in the Bible? Which writings should we acknowledge as having the qualities of sufficiency, certainty, and infallibility? Of course, the next paragraph in the Confession goes on to list the 66 books of our Protestant Bibles, adding all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. But why these 66 books? Well, we know why the world thinks we have these books and not any others. And the answer is obviously because of politics. Truth be told, they would tell us that in the very beginning, there was no such thing as Christianity, but there were Christianities, plural. Many different Christian groups who believed many different things, and each group had their own scriptures, their own writings, to back up what they believed. But those who were in positions of power and authority, they actively maneuvered to suppress those other writings and to oppress those who read those writings, so that eventually what became the Catholic, uh, Catholic orthodoxy won out. And that's why, according to Christianity's critics, we have these 66 books and not any others. But does this version of events really reflect what we find in the historical record? Well, last time, as we looked at the authority structures of the church, we considered the rule of faith and the office of bishop in light of apostolic succession. Already, these two things paint for us a very different picture of the early church. One that was beset by heresies and threatened by schisms, no doubt, but one that embraced a unified understanding of the essentials of the faith, handed down from the apostles and preserved through the lines of faithful men and women. Were these early Christians really all that confused about the source of their doctrine, as modern critics would have us believe? Well, I'm convinced that the picture left behind by history tells us a very different story. It's true that the church in her early days did not have a universal consensus of what books should be in the canon of the New Testament. And we're talking about the canon of Scripture today. If you're not familiar with that word, canon, that's canon with one end, not two ends, but 
two ends, that's the one you fire. Uh, cannon with one end, uh, one N. Uh, cannon simply refers to the list of books that we find in the Bible, your table of contents, if you will. The Greek word kanon uh, meant a measuring rod or a rule. Uh, think of a straight line that you can compare other lines to to determine whether or not they're straight. And that's the idea behind canon. When we speak of books that are canon, uh, we are implying that these books provide us uh, with that straight line that the doctrines and teachings of men can be measured up against to see whether they are straight, whether they are in line with the truth of God, or whether they are crooked. Of course, your Bible's table of contents is not God-breathed. God did not give us a list of books that he caused to be written. Well, does that mean, then, that Christians can have no objective way of speaking of the canon of Scripture? Skeptics and critics uh, lay hold of this uh, so-called problem of canon, and they argue that it is one of the greatest defeaters of the Christian claim. You Christians claim to have a word from God, but you have no objective way of determining which books we should listen to. Well, Roman Catholics have a nice and neat packaged answer. We know which books are canon, they say, because the infallible teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church tells us which books are in the canon. Which, by the way, this appeal to an infallible teaching magisterium doesn't really, doesn't really quite solve the problem because you still have that problem of interpretation. right? You have to interpret what the infallible uh, magisterium is, is telling you. So you need an infallible interpreter to interpret the infallible magisterium. But then how do you know that you're interpreting the infallible interpreter correctly? You need, you need an, interpreter, an infallible interpreter for the infallible interpreter of the infallible magisterium until you yourself are infallible. That's the only way that, that argument uh, adds up. But are those our only two options? To become helplessly skeptical or Roman Catholic? Well, thankfully, no. God has spoken. And Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, promises, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Well, we can ask, when did the church have a canon of Scripture? A list of books, if you will. The answer to that question depends on what exactly you mean by this word canon. Now, Dr. Michael Kruger, probably the go-to expert in all things related to canon. Uh, I'm basically just regurgitating what I learned from Dr. Kruger. He's written two books on the subject. Um, he's done a teaching series on the New Testament canon through Ligonier Ministries, well worth the 10 or 11 bucks you have to pay to get access to the entire, the entire series. Excellent. Um, if you have any questions about the canon, that's the guy to go to. Uh, he helpfully clarifies that there are different ways of looking at the canon. 
He gives three different perspectives or three different definitions uh, for canon. Um, and I've given those to you up front here. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to open up each of these individually. The, the ontological canon, the functional canon, and the exclusive canon. Uh, these definitions or these perspectives, they're not mutually exclusive. As if you have to choose which one you're going to take. Instead, when we consider these three different perspectives together, they give us a, a fuller picture of what the canon is. So let's look at this first one, the ontological canon. That's a scary word, ontological. Um, we speak of the canon as it is in itself. A gift from God to guide his church. As such, a book becomes canon as soon as it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Ten minutes after the book of Romans was written, it was canon. Being stamped with divine authority, having been inspired by God. Now often you'll hear this, this trope that this concept of canon is something foreign to the Scriptures. That Peter and Paul wrote what they wrote, not intending that anyone would take their writings as Scripture, but that sometime later in church history, men took these writings and imposed upon them this idea, this category of canon. But if you actually read <laughs> the New Testament writings themselves, you get a very different picture. It is evident from the writings of the New Testament that the apostles wrote with this divine authority in mind. For instance, Paul writes to the Thessalonians saying, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. One more example, John, in the book of Revelation, is so bold as to, to command a blessing on those who would keep what he has written and to threaten a curse very similar to the Mosaic curse that we see in Deuteronomy on anyone who would add to or take away from what he has written. Clearly, John understood his own writings to be backed with this divine authority. The books of the New Testament are authoritative, not because some church council or any other body outside of the Scriptures has endowed them with this authority, but because they are, in fact, the Word of God. Of course, just because a book is inspired by God does not guarantee that there will be a universal recognition of the book. As an atheist... I read through large chunks of the Bible um, without ever discerning their divine authority, as an example. Uh, 
These individual letters and gospels written to individual people and individual churches would have taken time to circulate through all the churches. And even after they had arrived, there was no guarantee that they would be received as Scripture. Thus, we can speak of the canon in a different sense, a different perspective. We can speak of a functional canon. In other words, a book becomes canon when it starts to function as Scripture for the Christian community. Now again, what's surprising is that already in the New Testament writings themselves, we see New Testament writings being used as Scripture. Let me show you what I mean. Peter, the Apostle Peter in his, uh, his second epistle, says this, talking about Paul's writings. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do, catch this, the other scriptures. In other words, Peter is identifying Paul's writings as scripture. Equal with authority uh, for the church, Uh, with equal authority for the church as the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament. Another example, Paul writing to Timothy uh, about the wages that are due to a pastor for his labors. He says this, For the Scripture says, quote, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, end quote. And another quote, The worker is worthy of his wages. So there's two quotes here that Paul alludes to, and he identifies as graphe, as scripture. The first citation, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, well, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. The second quotation, the second citation, the worker is worthy of his wages, that's found nowhere else except in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and verse 7. Paul is citing a New Testament gospel, and he identifies it alongside the Old Testament as Scripture. One more example, again from John in the Revelation. In the opening lines, he says this in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Not only does John equate his revelation with Old Testament prophecy, but he expects that it will be read aloud and heard in the Christian's Lord's Day Assembly. Well, when Christians got together on the Lord's Day and the books were opened, they weren't reading Harry Potter. They're reading Scripture. John anticipates his writings to function as Scripture for the local congregations. 
when we consider the writings of the early church fathers outside of the Scripture, we see that in the earliest documents we possess, men are alluding to the writings of the New Testament as Scripture. They use the New Testament right alongside the Old Testament in order to prove doctrine. Uh, They are directing people to the New Testament in order to settle controversies. And they are reading the New Testament in their weekly gatherings. The Didache, for instance, refers to the Sermon on the Mount as the commands of the Lord. The writing known as First Clement, which we've talked about before, I believe. Um, it was a letter written from the elders uh, of the Church of Rome uh, to the church at Corinth uh, that is still plagued by division. Uh, long after the Apostle Paul has written to them and has left, they're still divided. And this Clement, according to tradition, uh, was one of the bishops of Rome. So his name is usually attached uh, to this writing, and it's possible that Clement did indeed write it. Clement reads this, Take up the epistle of that blessed Apostle Paul to be sure he sent you a letter in the Spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos. Clement appeals to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, referring to 1 Corinthians, saying that it was composed by inspiration of the Spirit, and he does so in order to to settle the Corinthian controversy. Perhaps the most striking example comes from the so-called Epistle of Barnabas, which was written sometime early in the second century. Of course, uh, not by the Apostle Barnabas, who is, who is long past, uh, past him to glory at this point. But this was a writing that was still held in high esteem uh, by many people in the early church, and, and oftentimes it is cited alongside the canonical scriptures. In it, there is an allusion to the Gospel of Matthew, And this is what the epistle of Barnabas says. It says, As it is written, many are called, but few are chosen. You probably hear the allusion to Matthew's gospel there. Well, this phrase, as it is written, is often used in the New Testament to identify a citation from Scripture. Clearly, for the author of Barnabas, the gospel of Matthew is, is functioning as Scripture. Justin Martyr, uh, we've, we had the opportunity to, to open this up uh, a, a, a couple months back when we looked at worship in the early church. When he's describing the common uh, early church assembly, he speaks of uh, the reading of the memoirs of the apostles uh, alongside the writings of the prophets. They're a reference to both the New Testament and the Old Testament writings. Uh, again, functioning as Scripture, being read as Scripture in the local church. Well, many other examples could be given. By the end of the second century, you have this definite canonical core, a collection of undisputed books that are to be regarded as divinely inspired uh, and thus authoritative for the church. This core would include the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's epistles, as well as the letters of John and Jude, along with Revelation. 
But if we want to talk about the canon as a settled list of collected books, what Kruger calls the exclusive definition of canon. Well, here we have to admit that despite having an early consensus on this canonical core, there were other books within our New Testament canon that had a more rocky path uh, to make their way into uh, into the canon, at least being received by the church as as canon. Um, and this is, um, this is for numerous reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is, is that the books are short. Um, you think of uh, John's uh, second and third John, right? You probably have them just on one page in your Bible. Uh, shorter books were less likely uh, to be copied and to be quoted um, by the early church fathers. Other books, uh, there's question about um, the authorship. Hebrews is a classic example. Who wrote Hebrews? Probably Paul. Um, but that was a debate in the early church, and because it was debated, um, there, there was some doubt about whether or not it ought to be received as canon. So, so there are various reasons why we see these, uh, some of these books hanging out on the fringe. But before we, we dive in here, it, it should be no, pointed out that this definition of canon, this uh, exclusive uh, definition, um, is somewhat elusive. Uh, There has never been, nor will there probably ever be, a settled, authoritative, universal consensus on what the canon of Scripture is to be. To this day, there are still disagreements. Catholic Bibles have seven more books than our Protestant uh, 66 books. Orthodox Christians have even more books. Uh, There there are even some Christians out there who have a shorter 22-book New Testament canon as opposed to our 27-book canon. So there are still disagreements being had today. So you can see that if we limit our understanding to what the canon is, uh, to this exclusive definition, this nice and neat, tidy list of books, um, it could lend support to skeptical criticism. And that's why we've taken time to consider the canon in its broader sense uh, this afternoon, looking at the ontological canon and the functional canon. Well, when we consider the history of canon lists, it's very possible that the earliest example that we have of such a list comes not in the church proper, but from the heretic Marcion. And that might surprise you. Uh, Marcion, some of you might remember, those of you who have been with us uh, as, we've, as we've covered uh, the, the early years of church history, um, he wanted to gut the New Testament of anything that he deemed too Jewish. So he had a very truncated canon. Uh, It had Luke's gospel and Paul's epistles, and that was it. And and those were heavily edited. The earliest attempts by Orthodox Christians to provide such a list, a canon list, probably comes as an apologetic against Marcion and what he's attempting to do. The oldest example we have of a canon list 
is found in what is called the Moratorian Canon. It's an anonymous fragment, originally written sometime in the second century, though we have to admit there's some debate about what exactly this Moratorian fragment is. We can consider other canon lists from the third century, but it might be helpful at this point to consider how Eusebius, in his church history, uh, written about the beginning of the fourth century, how he paints the picture of what the canon looked like in his day. And I've provided this, um, this quote for you in your, your handout so you can follow along. It's somewhat lengthy, but not, not terrible, too long. This is what Eusebius says. At this point, it may be appropriate to list the New Testament writings already referred to. The holy quartet of the Gospels are first, followed by the Acts of the Apostles. So there you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Next are Paul's epistles, 1 John and 1 Peter. The revelation of John may be added, the arguments regarding which I shall discuss at the proper time. He goes into that later on in his, in his book. These are the recognized books. Those that are disputed, yet known to most, are the epistles called James, Jude, Second Peter, and the so-called Second and Third John, the work of the evangelist or of someone else with the same name. And he goes on, among the spurious books are the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Revelation of Peter, the alleged Epistle of Barnabas, the so-called teachings of the Apostles, that is the Didache, as well as the Revelation of John, if appropriate here. Some reject it, others accepted, as stated before. In addition, some have included the Gospel of the Hebrews in the list, for which those Hebrews who have accepted Christ have a special fondness. These would all be classified with the disputed books, those not canonical yet familiar to most church writers, which I have listed separately in order to distinguish them from those writings that are true, genuine, and accepted in the tradition of the church. Finally, he says, writings published by heretics under the names of the apostles, such as the Gospels of Peter, Thomas, Matthias, and others, or of the Acts of Andrew, John, and other apostles, have never been cited by any in the succession of church writers. The type of phraseology used contrast with apostolic style, and the opinions and thrusts of their content are so dissonant from true orthodoxy that they show themselves to be forgeries of heretics. Accordingly, they ought not be reckoned even among the spurious books, but discarded as impious and absurd. So with that, we see Eusebius puts these different books that he knows of into four different categories. First, he speaks of the recognized books. These are the books that make up what we've called the canonical core, books that are universally accepted by the church as canon. Next, Eusebius describes books that are disputed yet known. There's slight disagreement, disagreement about the status of these books, as I've already explained. 
But because they are known by most and read in many churches, they are still considered canon. Books like James, Jude, uh, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. Eusebius then lists certain spurious books. These are books that are old and orthodox in their teaching, uh, maybe even helpful on some level, but by and large the church has judged them to be non-canonical. Books like the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and the Gospel of the Hebrews. It's interesting to note that when we look at ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some of these books are included at the back of the volume, which is where you expect to find disputed books. Uh, Sinaiticus, for instance, uh, a Greek manuscript of the scriptures. It ends with uh, the shepherd of Hermas and Barnabas. Alexandrinus, another manuscript, ends with first and second Clement. Now, finally, Eusebius lists heretical books. These are books that are clearly unorthodox in their teaching and thus have been universally rejected. Uh, Kruger points out that when we take the first two categories together, uh, books which are um, recognized and books which are disputed yet known, we add those two together, we get exactly our 27 books of the New Testament canon. Along with Eusebius, by the end of the 4th century, we see a general consensus reached on which New Testament books are indeed canon. Athanasius, in his annual festal letter in the year 367, has a list of books that matches exactly our New Testament canon. And in agreement are Rufinus, Jerome, Augustine, and the synods of Hippo and Carthage. So uh, we can ask, by what criteria were, the, were they making this judgment? How were they deciding which books were in and which books were out? Well, first and foremost, these books had to be consistent with the rule of faith. They had to be orthodox in what they taught. Um, a Gnostic gospel that denied that uh, the God and Father of Jesus Christ was the creator of heaven and earth, uh, it had to be rejected. Or a book that taught that Jesus didn't actually assume a human body. He only appeared to be human, as uh, the Docetic, uh, Docetus taught. Um, they had to be rejected. Uh, secondly, a book had to be written by an apostle or a known associate of an apostle. Uh, Mark, Luke, or Timothy, uh, for instance. These were apostolic men. Uh, the church wanted books that got them as close to the apostles, as far as time goes, uh, as they could. Now, often, Gnostics, Gnostic books would be uh, uh, pseudonymous, uh, written under a false name, so like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, or the Gospel of Matthias. Uh, they did this in hopes of earning some credibility for their writings. But the content of these works are usually pretty telling, right? You read the Gospel of Thomas where uh, I think it's Peter at the end that says, 
uh, Lord, make these, make these women go away because they're not worthy of, of heaven. And Jesus says, well, if, if they want, I can turn them into men and they can go to heaven. I mean, that's Okay, that's, that's, probably not, that's probably not canon. That's probably not orthodox. Uh, that, that doesn't fly. Uh, bearing an apostle's name uh, wasn't enough. It had to be credibly connected to an apostle. Um, which leads to a third criteria. A book had to be known and used in most churches. This is the criteria of Catholicity. Books that were only used in a handful of churches or in a particular region, they might be good, they might be useful, but they're probably not Scripture. If it's true on an individual level, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. We expect it to also be true, generally speaking, corporately, of the broader church family. Of course, no book has ever enjoyed universal consensus without any doubters, but the church should be able to recognize the voice of the Spirit in the books that he has inspired and caused to be written. So as we draw our time together to a close, at the end of the day, our confidence, our trust in these books does not rely on these criteria. Our confession puts it this way. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received, because it is the Word of God. Furthermore, our confession adds, we may be moved... Excuse me, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. These books aren't canon because some church or denomination or synod or council or church father says they are. The church does not make a book canon. She simply receives the gifts that God has given her. The church doesn't make Scripture. She recognizes it, and she defends it. And that is, uh, that is all I have for you this afternoon.